It's worth asking ourselves, really, how this industry can keep on growing despite its repeated failures. One part of the reason, I suggest, is really the highly politicized issue we're dealing with here. We can push it off into more technological solutions, perhaps, or beyond the border into cooperation with third states. But besides uh, this blame-shifting, if you will, uh, part of the answer to the industry's growth, I suggest, lies in its internal dynamics, that is, in the incentives created for the various sectors that now work on uh, irregular migration. For many border forces in, in southern Europe in particular, uh, migration now constitutes a source of income and justification for their very existence at a time of diminishing traditional military threats. Um, and we see a similar pattern with uh, European defense industry supported by EU funds. As migrants are increasingly locked up for longer periods or retained, uh, multinational security companies stand to gain, as do uh, uh, lesser extent humanitarian organizations drawn into the border economy. And finally, as already noted, African states now have an incentive to actually maintain migratory pressure at the border thanks to the uh, political and sometimes financial gains such pressure might entail. So let's return quickly to the Melilla picture here, which really illustrates how the failure of controls has created a market for ever more controls in a self-perpetuating dynamic, as I see it. When the first sub-Saharan migrants arrived in this England in the 1990s, they simply walked across the border like everyone else. And the first fences were built, and suddenly a threat scenario emerged. The migrants now came running all at once. It was the only remaining way for them of entering. As Spanish police cooperation with Morocco then deepened, increasing raids on migrant dwellings in Morocco pushed migrants towards these fences, seen as a last escape route from uh, this situation in Morocco. Then new fences were built, even taller, with the help of EU funds, and this worked for a while by pushing migrants onto the uh, sea route. Over the last couple of years, however, we've seen increasingly desperate attempts of this kind of migrants charging across the fences in increasingly desperate manner and sometimes dying in the attempt. As a result, uh, uh, Madrid has now, uh, in the past year, asked for more funds. Uh, they fortified the Melilla border even more uh, and extended what it calls its excellent cooperation with Morocco, which now involves building yet another fence outside Melilla's own triple barrier. So what can be done? It's a rather gloomy picture we have at the borders, I think. And I also think there's no, I think everyone agrees, uh, everyone working on this agrees that there's no clear-cut solution to the very um, difficult to entangle uh, mess at the borders right now. But I guess this is the first thing. If politicians could acknowledge these difficulties, at least, instead of pressing the panic button about migration, proposing simplistic solutions, we have at least the beginning of a debate on the role of migration and of management of cross-border flows at a time of globalizations and rampant conflicts in Europe's neighborhood. And here we also need to be reminded constantly that, in fact, a small minority enter by sea and land into Europe, most simply arrive by air like everyone else, while uh, on a global scale, uh, almost 9 out of 10 of the world's refugees are hosted by developing nations not Western states. We also need to cut down on the incentives that now exist to uh, that sort of uh, keep uh, fueling this problem at the borders. And one of these uh, that I see as crucial is to give less importance, not more, to irregular migration management and migration controls in dialogue with African governments. 
since uh, if we do so, migrants may no longer be used easily as a bargaining chip in negotiations. And indeed, we might see return to North African countries, for instance, being seen as destinations, not simply transit countries towards Europe, which has long been the case historically. At the same time, uh, if we can at least start thinking about cutting down on new security solutions for the borders, including more advanced fencing of this kind, in the longer run, uh, we might see migrants resorting to less dangerous entry methods and less usage of smugglers. And besides this, of course, we need to find longer-term solutions, and I think Cecilia Malmström here uh, commendably insisted in recent years on the need for such solutions in refugee resettlement, in uh, sharing of the responsibility of our asylum and so forth, and also, I should say, on Europe's need for low-skilled migration in a time of aging populations in our countries. So in short, and to finish off, we need to de-escalate, in my view, our approach to this type of high-risk migration by land and sea, because the more we see it as an emergence, an intractable problem in need of a security response, the more this problem will keep on growing, the kind uh, of events we see here at Melia's Fence. Thank you. So our next speaker is... Thank you very much, Rubin. And um, there's much more to read inside this book and we'll, you'll be able to ask him more questions but now Jeremy um... Good evening I, I'm going to uh, at the risk of repeating what Ruben said slightly but I think I'll, uh, it, it won't be a repetition it's going to be a reframing of what he said I'm going to talk in a little more depth about the book um, and what my response to it was and uh, why it is an interesting book because it's coming at this problem from an anthropological point of view, which is one that I've never come across as a journalist before. Um, I found this book very interesting and very challenging. It's a book that begins and, and ends with borders and the work that they do in the symbolic realm, but also in the realm of politi political economy and in the gritty world where money simply changes hands. The border in this rudimentary sense is just business. Business for bureaucrats, technology firms, defence contractors, detention and security companies, and of course for people smugglers. Ruben is or was an anthropologist, once an anthropologist, always an anthropologist. I think. Um, and so in his way of seeing things, whatever else borders do, they construct identity. Me, you, us, them, self, other. It's an unavoidable process, whether you're part of a sedentary community or part of a minority community on the move. And it's something that Nicholas de, de Geneva, who can't be here tonight, was working on in, uh, in, in the US uh, about the construction of uh, the illegal Mexican migrant. We're all, to some extent, produced. Ruben's good about the way these identities converge in a performance, a kind of round-the-clock pageant that generates real wealth at the margins of nation-states. Would-be clandestine migrants pay smugglers who sometimes bribe border guards who are themselves paid by regimes raising taxes in order to contract corporations for the hardware that can seal off borders, even though these same borders need to be a little porous if certain sectors of the host society they're meant to protect can flourish on an influx of informal labour. The press and the humanitarian NGOs also depend on border transgression, death and difficulty. The press gets dramatic stories and the NGOs get a cause that allows them to pitch for funding. 
failed migrants back in Senegal try to earn grants from the EU by renouncing their sins very loudly and telling people who want to make the journey, don't do it, don't embark on this very costly, dangerous exercise. Um, does the EU money trickle down to these penitents? Some, sometimes. Everybody in Ruben's story is interdependent. Migrants, frontier guards, the EU apparatus and the border bureaucracies of individual sovereign states. They transact, they exchange, and in some basic sense they reciprocate. Even illegal migrants have something to trade. They offer able-bodied labour, an object of study, a job creation spur in the domain of border vigilance, which is an industry, and it has to be said a flattering self-image of Europe as a place you'd reach, or you'd risk anything to reach. At the same time, these exchanges are deeply asymmetrical, and the poorer migrant is clearly at a disadvantage. The rules constraining migration are like the old vagrancy laws in Britain, with their licenses and sanctions for seasonal labourers, unemployed people, tinkers, peddlers and travellers. And if you map this sort of constraint across international borders, and as Rubin says, uh, you end up with two constants, and they're obvious. On the one hand, the fetish of the border, and on the other, the racialized migrant. Rubin ends his book powerfully and controversially by asking why we indulge in the folly of controlling human movement at any cost. One day, who knows, the illegality industry will be dismantled and will come to terms with the fact that there are always people on the move. And that's the gist of it, I think, and it's a compelling argument. One difficulty, as you just heard, is that by creating fortified borders, you generate anxiety on the inside and the outside, and maybe, too, you heighten the impulse for inward migration. Rubin's remarks remind me of the classic case in Britain half a century ago when the Commonwealth Immigration Act, which I think was 1962 or something like that, 63, was introduced to tighten up immigration from the remains of empire. And as the bill made its way through Parliament, there was a large intake of worried people from the remains of of the old colonies, the very people the law was supposed to keep out, but who knew now that a door was about to be shut. Right now we want more surveillance and security on the actual frontiers of European states and along the European common border. But at the same time, as Ruben says, Europe has been expanding a a kind of elastic meta-border into countries like Morocco, Mauritania and Senegal with African migration outposts, African holding centres and deals on cooperation and aid. Ruben argues that none of this is working. So I like his idea that there could be a more innocent dialogue between European migration enforcement on the one hand and its funded African counterparts on the other. I also like the idea that if that happened, North Africa would become a destination again for sub-Saharan migrants rather than a transit point to Europe. I worry, I guess, that it's hard to put the clock back and, and a spectral European prohibition still hovers over sub-Saharans or would hover over sub-Saharan settling in the Maghreb as they used to do this far but no further. Yet de-escalation, as Ruben says, is certainly the order of the day and I think it's going to be hard. I'm a journalist and I've come to see the same I've come to the same stories as Ruben through journalism. I've always understood the border as a testing ground for sovereignty and a place of tension Uh, between inclusive and exclusive, between permission and denial of permission. 
So this is really the first time I've been invited to step back and see the border as an anthropologist sees it, as part of a larger consensual system, a totality actually, where all the protagonists have well-assigned roles and a strange interdependency, even though they're in conflict. All the same, there are real contradictions, and I think they go roughly as follows. First, all sovereign states have a right in law to patrol and enforce their boundaries. But this right is starkly opposed to the principle of freedom of movement. The border is still in the ascendant, all the more so as host communities in the West express their utopian hopes for a new era of quarantine and isolation. Anti-immigration sentiment is a huge auxiliary force, a volunteer army of the national mood in the, surface, in the service of real, expensive, dramatic border enforcement. Second, there's a genuine consistency, it seems to me, between a community's wish to patrol its industry and wealth, to levy taxes and contributions, to regulate the movement of capital and goods in and out, and at the same time to control who does or does not enter. I'm talking here about an older 20th century model of the sovereign entity, and uh, it hasn't withered away yet. But there's a lot less consistency in the wish to deregulate the movement of goods and money while seeking to control the movement of human beings. And I'm talking here about the brave new world that we're not quite ready to be part of, that we're happy to cherry-pick. I think UKIP, for the moment, is a have-your-cake-and-eat-it party. It's incoherent. Market fundamentalists, on the other hand, with no baggage about national identity, make a perfectly coherent case for the abolition of border controls. Nonetheless, and this is the third point, the more the insourcing and outsourcing of goods and services, jobs and capital, fray the cordons of sovereignty, the louder the argument for draconian immigration control seems to become. I was drawn to report on asylum and irregular migration because it's on borders that these contradictions become so stark. But in everything I've had to say, I've been careful to explain, as Rubin has, that irregular migration is a very modest statistical phenomenon. According to the International Organization for Migration, fewer than 220 million people in the world today are living outside their countries of origin. That's about one in 32, 33 people on the planet. Of those, perhaps 30 million might be irregular migrants, and that's one in every 215 of us. Even smaller in the EU, actually. Compare this to the number of people living in absolute poverty, using the World Bank's definition of less than $1.25 a day. It's not one in 215, it's not one in 32, it's more like one in six or seven of us. So I think that when Rubin leaves his rich description as an anthropologist and tells us with the authority of a person who's spent years in the field that we have to get migration, irregular migration or migration, into perspective, he really has a point. Thank you. Thank you very much, Jeremy, and it sort of takes this whole argument forward. It is There is something very weird about a world where we talk all the time about globalisation, but where borders become stronger and stronger. So now I will turn to Cecilia Malmström.
um, who has the difficult char- task of managing all this. <laughs> Well, maybe not alone. Uh, thank you very much. Good evening. Uh, it's, it's a great pleasure to be here and to discuss these very, very important and complex issues. I will tell you a little bit about how we have tried to deal with these issues from European Union level. For four and a half years, I've been the Commissioner for Home Affairs, dealing with migration, asylum, uh, labour migration, borders, visa, but also fight against uh, organised crime. So quite a, a heavy portfolio, I would say. Uh, and to put it a little bit in, in perspective, in the past 30 years... Most of Europe has gone from having internal borders, in some cases mined and covered in barbed wire, to have now, not for the UK, but still a Schengen zone of free movement and free passage across one's heavily guarded border posts. And with no internal borders and common external borders, it is reasonable and necessary to have a migration policy that deals fairly with all kinds of migration, legal migration, irregular migration and asylum seeker. And this has been very much my task during these years to uh, encourage more legal migration, to bring us the skills and talents that we need in Europe and to address the demographic challenges, but also pushing for Europe to take our moral responsibility to protect those uh, in needs. Asylum, to start with that, is a fundamental right. It is not only protected by European law, it is also covered by international law, the Geneva Convention from 1958. In our Schengen zone uh, of free movement of person, it means that we have to have a common asylum system. You cannot have open internal borders and free movement for EU citizens, Schengen visa, common rules of immigration, and then not have a common asylum system. It wouldn't work, and it didn't. The system was clearly broken, and we had to fix it. And this is why, after 14 years of negotiations, we last year agreed on a package of EU-wide laws that are intended to revolutionise our ability to provide international protection in an orderly and fair manner. This will lead to fairer, quicker, better quality asylum decisions. There will be greater protection for unaccompanied minors, victims of torture. We will have the same rules in all EU countries, the rules of procedures, the administrative rules of access once you get to the border. They will ensure humane material reception conditions, such as housing for asylum seekers, and that fundamental rights of concern are fully respected. And we have considerably reduced the possibility to detain asylum seekers. Now, these laws are good. They're a very important step forward. Now, of course, the difficulty is to get them implemented. The real work will begin, or is already um, ongoing right now, to make sure that all countries in the European Union have a functioning asylum seeker a system across the EU. So my focus the last year and my successor in a month will have to make sure that there is a coherent implementation across the EU to make sure that all countries, all 28, are taking their responsibility to implement the rules correctly uh, and to show solidarity to those countries in need of assistance. And we will provide, as we are, assistance in this regard, funding, training, practical cooperation. We have established since a couple of years ago something we call the EASO, the European Asylum Support Office. It's based in Valletta, in Malta, and it provides training for all the countries who want to by setting up training modules to make sure that the, uh, the people who work, who receive the application of asylum all over Europe, treat them according to the same standard. 
EASO is also helping to share country of origin information so that the caseworkers can access the most up-to-date information about the situation in source countries to make informed decisions as to whether an applicant has a well-founded fear of persecution. And the ASO have also support teams supported by member states to help countries under pressure. They have been working in Greece, in Bulgaria, for instance. They are now helping in, in Italy and in Malta and piloting areas of joint processing of asylum claims so that one member state can help another to increase the capacity and to prevent build-up of backlogs. In this context, there is, however, a great paradox. Our high standards of international protection apply to those who are lucky to make it to Europe. How do the migrants get into Europe in the first place in order to be able to apply for asylum? This is a question that that is put in the book and that many are, are asking and it became to the fore in October last year when 360 migrants drowned trying to reach the shores of Lampedusa, a small island outside Italy. Actually, Lampedusa is closer to Africa than it is to the Italian mainland. So it's really in the middle of the sea. I was in Lampedusa just a few days after this terrible disaster. In a room big like this, there were 300 coffins. And in the front, there were 10 small white coffins with teddy bears. These were the children. And these coffins will haunt me forever. And there was an outcry in Europe and all over the world saying that this is not worthy of Europe. This should not happen again. But the truth, it it has happened before and it is happening again and it will happen again. Because our current approach does not deter desperate people from attempting dangerous journeys across the Mediterranean. And sometimes they don't make it. Following on the Lampedusa tragedy, the European Union set up a task force Mediterranean. That's very often a solution to set up a task force. Um, But that task force has tried to be very operational to establish short-term solutions to prevent similar tragedies. We've had uh, to view the southern border as a common EU concern, not just the concern of some member states. So the task addresses a number of issues, including external border management, intensifying cooperation with countries of origin and transit, steps to tackle trafficking in human beings, uh, but also assistance to countries under pressure and trying to promote resettlement. The EU border management policy is very often, in this book and and, uh, elsewhere, criticised as being security-oriented. In many cases, that's true. Um, the role of the Commission have not been, and my, my particular aim there has not been to seal off borders, but it is of course necessary to have a well-managed border policy that effectively ensures protection of fundamental rights. We have something that we call Eurosur. It's a European border surveillance system. It provides us with example where we can find a careful balance between different concerns when it comes to borders. It provides a framework for cooperation and information exchange among member states and with Frontex, the border agency, to prevent irregular border crossings, to counter border cross uh, crime, drug smuggling, for instance, but also very important to reduce the loss of lives. And only two weeks ago, thanks to Eurosur cooperation, uh, they managed to detect a small vessel uh, outside Spain and saved 36 persons who were about to drown. So the protection of fundamental rights, including the principle of non-refoulement, which means that you cannot push back a boat before you have really made sure that there's no one on board who wants to ask for asylum. That is illegal to do pushbacks according to European law. 
and international law. The protection and safety of life at sea are key elements in the regulation that we are setting up for the sea operations. And saving life is, of course, very, very important. And in reaction to the Lampedusa tragedy, the Italians set up um, operation that they call Mare Nostrum to take very active role in rescuing migrants in sea. And the Italians have done a formidable job. According to the latest figure, they have saved 163,000 people. That's not a small amount of people since the beginning of the year, only outside uh, Italy. But, uh, and it has, of course, saved a lot of people. But at the same time, we know that not everybody has made it. The Mediterranean is a huge sea. And uh, the paradox is that, that more people have been saved, but the smuggling has also increased. So people come in even more rickety vessels and they pay even higher sums because the smugglers tell them you will be saved by the Italians. And we have seen ruthless examples of how the smugglers sometimes even let the people die because they see the police boat coming or even even attacking the boat themselves. As we saw outside Libya a couple of weeks ago where many people uh, died. The role of Frontex in this is uh, Frontex is a corporation agency. Frontex does not have any boats. Frontex does not have any helicopters or staff. Frontex coordinates the work of member states. It is key, of course, to have an effective border control. Uh, it is not, strictly speaking, a search and rescue body, but of course it is enhancing the capacity of member states to deal with search and rescue situation through technical and operational support. And Italy has wanted Frontex to take over the Mare Nostrum operation, uh, but Frontex budget capacities is not up to that, cannot do it. But there will be a small Frontex operation in the central uh, Mediterranean called Triton, and the focus uh, will be to on border management and, of course, uh, providing assistance to any person in, or vessel in distress. And we are right now trying to get many member states to contribute to this operation in order to make sure that we assist the Italians. Will, what about the possibility of creating more legal avenues? Because why do people uh, embark on these vessels? Well, again, because there are very few legal ways to get to Europe. Once you come to the border, you have all these rights within your asylum system, but you have to go to the border, and it's very difficult to get to the border. So that's why people make these lethal journeys. Um, and we need to find ways to increase, uh, we need to find legal ways to come to Europe. And we should encourage and continue to explore the possibility to enable people to ask for international protection outside the European Union. That can be done in several ways if there is a political will. Uh, the first, of course, is resettlement. If more people resettled refugees, the most vulnerable, directly from the camps outside Syria, for instance, they could get a safe journey to one EU country where they can have a new life. And the UNHCR and the Commission have been constantly asking for member states. We can even provide technical and uh, financial assistance to member states to do resettlement, but we cannot force them. It's a national decision. Uh, and this year we have had uh, 26,000 uh, places asked for, and that might sound good, but 20,000 uh, 20, of them are from Germany. The rest, 6,000, are for, from six, eight, nine countries. Again, we are 28 countries in the European Union, so half of the EU countries can definitely do more. Uh, 
We're also looking if there are other examples, some sort of coordinated EU approach uh, for issuing humanitarian visas or asylum entry visas. And this is something that, that we need to look at. My, my designated successor at the Commission, Commissioner Dimitrios Avromopoulos, has suggested that he would like to explore the possibility for asylum being made at EU embassies outside. And this is something we have been talking about for a long time. It's, it's not obvious because you need to really look at it from a legal, practical and political perspective. But this is certainly something that, that will be on the agenda uh, for, for, the, for the time to come. Uh, finishing this, sorry, I've been a bit long. Uh, let me just mention something at the sharp end of our migration policy. A comprehensive and credible migration policy must provide answers how to cope with migrants who have had their applications refused, cannot stay. We have an EU return directive to allow member states to meet the challenge of returning people who have had their application refused, who are not asking for asylum and cannot stay. That has to be done with full respect of fundamental rights and the dignity of people uh, concerned, uh, both international conventions but also EU uh, conventions, of course. If we are to be successful, and the, the book that Ruben wrote ends with this, or it's, it's a theme in many of, of your, your chapters, we need, of course, to cooperate, cooperate with the countries of origin and transit. Sometimes that is not easy if it is a country where the conflicts uh, uh, are. Uh, but we need to reach out to other countries. We need to try to contribute to institutional legislative reforms, capacity building in partner countries, to support them uh, to also they do uh, management of migration and to improve protection and reception capacities. And some countries have reached out to us to ask for that help in order to also be able to cope with migrants in their own country. For instance, Tunisia, who very soon after the Arab Spring uh, ratified the Geneva Convention, for instance, uh, Morocco, Jordan, all these three countries have signed uh, a partnership with the European Union where we want to work on these issues, uh, helping them to build up the capacity, but also also increasing uh, legal ways to get to Europe and to, to, uh, to build the, the capacity building. And we are talking with other countries as well. We need to make sure that our foreign policy, of course, is aligned with this and comprehensive so we can deal with the root causes of migration, development policy, trade, political cooperation, support for democracy, good governance, etc. And we need to, and maybe we have time to dwell upon that a little bit more, we need to look closer at labour migration to build up the work we have done uh, also in the European Union to facilitate for seasonal workers, for intra-corporate transferees, etc. To make sure that we can welcome people who come here and seek for work because we need them. We need people here in Europe. The demography is going down and uh, we see that, that people turn elsewhere to work because Europe is not a welcoming continent anymore and I hope this can be the approach of the next commission. So to wrap up, uh, we live, and I don't have to tell you because you are students of international politics or, or you, you follow this, uh, we live in very difficult times. UNHCR have said that never since the Second World War have we had so many people on the run as we have today. 52 million refugees globally. And of course, only a small, a very small fraction of these people reach Europe. But we have terrible conflicts in our neighborhood, Syria, Iraq, Ukraine, failed states in Libya. I could go on with a long list, uh, only to mention countries close to us. And we have a moral duty to protect those who run away from war, persecution or dictatorship. 
And we also have a responsibility to make sure that people who try to come and work for us have at least some possibilities to do that in a legal way. But we are facing popular resistance. We have xenophobic parties. We have a strong political resistance to, um, to open up here. And in order to, to address these issues, you can have all the laws in the world, but if you don't have the political leadership, the responsibility and the solidarity, you will not get very far. And all European countries, again, need to play their part here. So these are difficult, complex issues. There are no easy solutions. Migration will be very high on the global and on the European agenda for many years still. And I just hope that we can find uh, a way to address this that protects and defends the value that European Union is built upon, uh, that we take our uh, international responsibility and that we continue to make sure that all countries in the European Union uh, handle this in, in a correct way, according to European law of course, but also that there is enough political will and leadership to do that. Thank you very much. Um, I want to finish now. I want to say one thing, which is that I also think we ought to look at the root causes of suspicion about migration within Europe. Why is it that despite the evidence people think that we should have less migration when the opposite is actually true. And I think that does have to do with the growth of inequality. It does have to do with some kind of corruption of politics. We can't go into it all, but I think that's an issue that we really need to discuss. And I want to... I want not only to thank our audience, to thank Cecilia for coming here and being so gracious in, and, and committed to engaging in this debate, uh, but also to Jeremy and Rubin, but also very much to all of you who came. I mean, this was a really high-level, serious debate, and I hope we can continue it in the time to come. So thank you, everybody. Thanks to you. <laughs> Thank you.